tonight's show is brought to you by Pumpkin Spice and Everything. SurvivalFeeling.com and you, our listeners. Her clothes were all worn out or had gotten torn off of her back so that she was stark naked, but she wasn't a bit ashamed of that. Well, that's a tantalizing detail, isn't it? What is up, all of you wayward, spooky souls, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell stories about all of our adventures out there in the great outdoors. So glad to have you guys back with us for part four of our spooky season series as we celebrate all things creepy and unknown here at Wayward Stories as I indulge my penchant for all the weird stuff out there in the world. And I appreciate you guys humoring me and indulging me. And I hope that you've been enjoying it and I hope you've learned a little bit of something. That's the great thing about all these kinds of stories is that you don't have to you don't have to necessarily believe it. You don't have to take it for what it is, but there's always a grain of truth. There's always something somewhere, a seed where the original stories, the original legends, the original myths, if you want to call them that sprang from. And there's just such an anthropological angle to it. There's so much to be learned from it. I don't know. I'm personally just an amateur folklore nut. Folklore to me goes right alongside with history and I love history. Like, I don't know. It's the story of us as a people, um, as a race on this planet, a bunch of humans. And you know, it's an ugly story a lot of the time, but there's a lot of beauty in it. And to me, folklore mythology, that's, that's a big part of it. Um, so I'm glad to have you guys back for part four of the spooky season series. And we're going to get into it here pretty quick, but first and foremost, how are you guys doing tonight? I hope you have a big adventure planned and I hope you are listening to me as you're on your journeys out there into the great unknown. And hopefully I can creep you out just a little bit. I hope you're camping this weekend. And did I scare you? Because this week we're going to be talking about spirits of the forest. But before we get there, um, I got a gripe. I have a gripe and I'm going to gripe about it because it's my podcast and I can do it. Um, I've been watching, I'm a big, like Josh Gates fanboy. Like I will admit that right up front. I'm a big fanboy of Josh Gates. I love expedition unknown. Like I absolutely love it. Um, I love seeing all these different parts of the world that I can't necessarily go to right now, maybe even ever. But I like seeing them. They're a lot of fun to watch. And there's so much to learn from them. Like there's so much history and there's so much culture you can learn. And I mean, more often than not, I'm watching like an an episode of Expedition Unknown or whatever. And I've got my iPad in my lap and I'm Googling. I'm researching stuff that's coming up and it's just passing on the show. It's just boom here. It's there. It's gone. And I'm like, oh, wait, that's fascinating. And I've got a whole new subject, a whole new thing that I can learn about. So I love Josh Gates. I want to point that out up front. Love it or lump it. Good, bad or ugly. I am a Josh Gates fanboy. But he's got another show. That it appears he's just like an executive producer on and kind of like he's lending his name and his presence to it. You know, I mean, and that's good business. You've got a big brand. You are a face. 
you know, build an umbrella. Anything you put out that you're connected to is going to be like a revenue stream. That's smart. He's got this show. I don't even know if it's like new. I didn't look at like when it was released or if it's concurrent. I get all of my TV. I'm not a big TV watcher at all. I like history. I like documentaries. I like stuff like that. So I have like Discovery Plus, you know, like I don't even have cable. Um, But anyway, it's called Expedition X. And it's kind of like this intersection. See, I know Josh Gates is like, he is a scientifically minded dude. He's an archaeologist, but he had like some experience with a Yeti somewhere or a track of a Yeti. And so he has actually branched into that. Like, hey, let's, there are things we may not understand. So he does have a little bit of an inkling towards those things. But this particular show seems to be aimed at the quote unquote, like paranormal community. Cause that's hot again. Like we talked about this last week, I think like it's hot again and everyone's trying to cash in on that. And this show while fascinating and I am enjoying watching it, it's actually also at the same time, like killing little parts of my soul. Because like I said, I'm a Josh Gates fanboy, but I have some like extreme criticisms of the two hosts that they have on here. And I just want to point out is, like I've said before, and it's pertinent to now, these episodes and everything, I am an open-minded skeptic. I'm not going to believe stuff that you throw at me at first glance. I will try to disprove it. And if anything's left at the end of that, I'm like, hey, you know what? Maybe there's something going on here we don't understand. I love unknown stuff. I love entertaining the idea. And I personally do believe that there's more to our reality than we can see and understand. I personally believe that that's just my personal stance, not trying to push that on anyone, but I'm skeptical about what things can be claimed to be a part of that. I'm very much skeptical about it. Like I just, I try to look at it logically and reasonably this show. The reason it's like tormenting my soul is because I'm such a big Josh Gates fan. And I'm like, Josh, bro, why did you do this? Like, You've got a girl here, you're calling a paranormal researcher, right? And it's saying like, with all these years experience, don't even know, I can't even find anything about her. And she like literally believes everything is a freaking ghost. Everything. Like, and this is like, I'll, I'll just give you this quick example and I'll get off this gripe. But like one of the shows I was watching last night, I think they're in Montana. And a bunch of coyotes start barking in the background. Coyotes. Everyone knows what a coyote is, right? Like pretty much everyone's heard a coyote. We all know that loud yipping squelchy sound that they make. They sound very much like a pack of coyotes. A bunch of coyotes start hollering in the distance at a, you know, somewhat coincidental point in their little investigation. And she's like losing it. Like that's it. This is haunted with a capital H. And the guy that's the skeptic to go along with her. It says he's a field biologist, okay? This is where my brain breaks. It's like she believes everything's paranormal. He believes nothing's paranormal, which is fine. It's a fun dynamic, but, but he's a field biologist and he's like sitting there and he's like, I can't explain that. I don't know what that is. I'm like, who, where do you find a field biologist that doesn't know what a coyote sounds like? Like if you've, Ever, it's, he says at some point he grew up in the Western U.S. If you have grown up anywhere in the Western U.S. and you have never heard a pack of coyotes yelling, you know, yipping away the next ridge over, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It just, it makes me angry. Josh, bro, I know you listen to me. I know you do because, you know, we're tight like that. I love you, man. But like, what, what? 
are you doing? Like, and a lot of y'all are saying, and you're, you'd be preaching to the choir. A lot of you guys are going to be saying, Hey, listen, like that's reality TV. It ain't real. You're preaching to the choir. I worked in reality TV. I know it's not real. I know it's scripted. I know it's heavily doctored by producers out there doing things in many cases. I don't believe it's in all cases. And that's why I want to point that out. Not in all cases. There are some shows out there that I, with my production background, I can watch it and go, yo, I really feel like they're legit doing what they're doing here. Because there's hallmarks. And it's too much to go into and explain here. But there are hallmarks of when something's being, I don't, let's say influenced by outside forces purposely with or without the people on the screen's knowledge. You can tell when that's happening if you know what to look for. There are shows out there that I actually think like, no, I I think they're legit. I think this is pretty legit. I'm not going to say which ones they are, et cetera, et cetera. But like, this is not like, Josh, I'm a fan. I don't like Expedition Unknown. Like you're just out there looking and, you know, you find something weird. You're like, hey, that's weird. But, you know, that can probably be explained. But this Expedition X thing, like it's fun to watch. But where do you come up with a field biologist that doesn't know what a pack of coyotes sounds like? Like coyotes are very, very distinct and obvious. Um, And where do you come like this paranormal researcher host of the show? Like. I get it. Most any of you guys out there that are just flat hardcore skeptics or atheists and just know that you won't even entertain entertain it. Like I've I've probably already lost you. I'm probably not even talking to you now. You've probably already turned off the show. But like in the field of paranormal research and metaphysical research, it's a really big deal to be like skeptical. They're trying to establish legitimacy. Like it's a battle they're fighting. And you come up with this woman who like literally a twig of grass moves and it's a ghost. Like it's almost painful. It's almost painful for me. So anyway, Joshua, I love you. You know, I love you like, because we're, we're tight like that, but like just this one's killing my brain. This one's killing my brain. Anyway, spent way too long just doing fun introductory stuff tonight. So let's get on to tonight's show. Tonight, as I said, we're going to be talking about spirits of the forest. Once again, it's the spooky season. We are suspending our disbelief for this month of October, and we're going to talk about some fun stuff tonight. And whether you do or do not believe in the possibility of other planes of existence or spirituality or anything like that, you are going to learn a lot of anthropological stories tonight. You're going to learn a lot of myths and folklore and a lot of stuff that you may not have heard of before, and I think you will be entertained nonetheless. So we're going to get right into it. Let's talk about some spirits of the forest. I have before me a curated and truncated list of little forest spirits that you may have heard of. The reason it is truncated is because I did that to it. Because there was like 20 extra names on this list that I could not pronounce, nor did I recognize. And most of you would not recognize them either. Um, But these are ones that you have likely heard of. They are in the global zeitgeist of sorts. The brownies, the elves, dwarves and gnomes, a tommy knocker or just a knocker, um, goblins and gremlins, leprechauns, of course, pixies and sprites, of course. And then this one you may have heard of because it's kind of making a little bit of a comeback. It's it's shown up in some modern stuff, but the Nissa, which comes from Scandinavian folklore, um, the kobold. We talked about a kobold last week. They're very interesting. All of these, 
share very similar things. They are all very small people um, or spirits. They're all very small spirits. And all of these, let me make sure. Yeah, all of these exist on the European continent. Um, but it'll be interesting. We'll talk about later when we get into some other kinds of small little people, spirits of the forest, which is really the focus of tonight's show more than anything. But we're going to talk about a couple here that have really great stories with them that are not considered quote unquote little people. Um, but that right there kind of gives you an idea of what we're looking at. And it gives you an idea of the broader scope of Many, many, many different cultures, basically all of them, spoiler alert, basically all cultures, no matter how divided by oceans or land masses, they are, have stories of little spirit people, um, or forest spirits in general. Um, and I think that's important to note because we'll talk about it more later, but there's something fascinating there that you have to consider. There's only really two, there's three possibilities, but only two logical possibilities of how very disparate cultures divided by entire oceans can have essentially the same kinds of, let's say entities popping up in their mythology and their folklore and their legend. I mean, really, well, really let's do it now. The only three options are because you get into Native American cultures, and we're going to talk about them later. That's going to be the heaviest portion of this show. They predate Colombian contact. They predate Christopher Columbus hitting the shores of the Americas. How can they have stories of essentially the same kind of entities, spiritual entities, that the European continent has pre-Columbian? So you've only got three options. They either originated on their own, Somehow, almost identical representations of little spirit entities just originated. Their genesis was completely original, cut from whole cloth, and just happened to be basically identical. That, to me, is the least logical explanation, personally. Or, there was some kind of contact between cultures pre-Columbus, which is highly, highly contentious thing to say. Or... An even more highly contentious thing to say, to postulate, to hypothesize. What if these are like actually just like really things that exist in the world and we're getting the cultural lens version of them through all of these different peoples? None of those are really good options, to be honest, in most people's minds. But it's fascinating and it's fun because we're here in the spooky season and we are suspending our disbelief. And it's like, really, the more logical of the three possible explanations are the two that nobody wants to consider, which is basically there was cross-cultural contact before Columbus or these little spirit critters actually exist, which is, you know, fascinating in its own right. If y'all are still with me, let's get into it. Um, this one that I'm about to talk about, this is called a Leshy. Um, it is a Slavic, Slavic entity in its origin. This comes from Zaluna.net, which is a folklore website. Um, and let's just talk about the Leshy. He is a creepy, kind of actually terrifying spirit of the forest. The Leshy is a tutelary deity of the forests in pagan Slavic mythology. As the spirit rules over the forest and hunting, he may be related to the Slavic god Porowit, known as forest demons and tricksters, but they protect the forest. The Leshy is masculine and humanoid in shape. It's able to assume any likeness and can change in size and height. 
he is sometimes portrayed with horns surrounded by packs of wolves and bears. In some accounts, Leshy is described as having a wife and children. He is known by some to have a propensity to lead travelers astray and abduct children, which he shares with Chort, the Black One. That is incredibly dark and creepy. Um, and he would lead some to believe that he is an evil entity. He is, however, also known to have a more neutral disposition toward humans, dependent on the attitudes and behaviors of an individual person or a local population towards the forest. Leshy could take children who were cursed by their relatives, in particular parents, away to the forest people. Some would therefore describe him as more of a temperamental being, like a fairy. When Leshy goes around to inspect his domains, the forest roars around him and the trees shake. By night he sleeps in some hut in the depth of the woods, and if by chance he finds that a belated traveler or sportsman has taken up his quarters in the refuge that he intended for himself, he strives hard to turn out the intruder, sweeping over the hut in the form of a whirlwind which makes the doors rattle and the roofs heave, while all around the trees bend and writhe, and a terrible howling goes through the forest. If, in spite of all of these hints, the uninvited guest will not retire, he runs the risk of being lost the next day in the woods or swallowed up in a swamp. All the birds and beasts which inhabit the forest are under the protection of the leshy. His favorite is the bear, his only servant who watches over him. A sportsman's success in the woods depends to a great extent on his treatment of the leshy. In order to please the wayward spirit, hey, the leshy's a wayward spirit. He's one of us, y'all. In order to please the wayward spirit, he makes an offering of a piece of bread or a pancake sprinkled with salt and he lays it on the stump of a tree. The permanent peasants offer up prayers once a year to the leshy, presenting him with a packet of leaf tobacco of which he is very fond. Let's tell you a story about the leshy, one of the fairy tales of the leshy. This is from Russian Fairy Tales by W.R.S. Ralston in 1887. The leshy. A certain priest's daughter went strolling in the forest one day without having obtained leave from her father or mother, and she disappeared utterly. Three years went by. Now in the village in which her parents dwelt, there lived a bold hunter who went daily roaming the thick woods with his dog and his gun. One day he was going through the forest, and all of a sudden his dog began to bark, and the hair of its back bristled up. The sportsman looked and saw lying in the woodland path before him a log, and on the log there sat a moujik plaiting a bast shoe. And as he plaited the shoe, he kept looking up at the moon and saying with a menacing gesture, Shine, shine, O bright moon. The sportsman was astounded. How comes it, thinks he, that the moujik looks like that? He is still young, but his hair is as gray as a badger's. His only thought was these words. But the other replied as if guessing what he meant. Gray am I, being the devil's grandfather. Then the sportsman guessed that he had before him no mere mujik, but a leshy. He leveled his gun and bang, let him have it right in the paunch. Mm. That's got to be horrible to be shot in the paunch, does it not? I mean, got to happen to Forrest Gump. Some of y'all may or may not know this. It happened to um, Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark fame. That's a story we may tell someday. Got shot in the butt. <clears throat> the Lacey groaned and seemed to be going to fall across the log, but directly afterwards he got up and dragged himself into the thickets. After him ran the dog in pursuit, and after the dog followed the sportsman. He walked and walked and came to a hill, and in that hill was a fissure, and in the fissure stood a hut. 
He entered the hut, and there on a bench lay the Lashi stone dead, and by his side a damsel, exclaiming amid bitter tears, Who now will give me to eat and to drink? Hell, fair maiden, said the hunter, tell me whence thou comest, and whose daughter thou art. Ah, good youth, I know not that myself, any more than if I had never seen the free light, never known a father, nor a mother. Well, get ready as soon as you can, fair maiden. I will take you back to holy Russia. <laughs> That's fun to read. So he took her away with him and brought her out of the forest, and all the way he went along he cut marks onto the trees so that he might find his way back to the Lacy's hut. Now this damsel had been carried off by the Lacy and had lived in his hut for three years. Her clothes were all worn out or had gotten torn off of her back so that she was stark naked, but she wasn't a bit ashamed of that. Well, that's a tantalizing detail, isn't it? Um, when they reached the village, the sportsman began asking whether there was anyone there who had lost a girl. Up came the priest and cried, Why, that's my daughter. And up came running the priest's wife and cried, O oh, thou dearest child, where hast thou been so long? I had no hope of ever seeing thee again. But the girl just gazed and blinked with her eyes, understanding nothing, and after a time, however, she began to slowly come back to her senses. Then the priest and his wife gave her in marriage to the hunter, and rewarded him with all sorts of good things. And they went in search of the hut, in which she had lived while she was with the Lacy. Long did they wander about the forest, but that hut they never found. So that's the story of the Lacy. Lacy's a creepy dude. You might want to protect your daughters going out in the forest because Lacey might just take them hide your kids hide your wife like but on a serious note the fascinating and fun things about stories like these old lit myths legends and folklore like this who knows there could be a grain of truth to it who's to say it's that season so let it be a possibility who's to say but the broader cultural context very much this story specifically is very much a it's a teaching tool. Number one, it talks about, you know, take care of your children and not cursing your children, for example, um, watching out for each other. But more particularly, also the Lacey in and of himself, back to the description of the Lacey, his treatment of you is quite dependent on your reverence of nature. How you treat the forest is how he treats you. In that, it's kind of a cautionary tale. Be good stewards of the land from which you take your sustenance. Like the land supports you, so you need to support the land, or the Lacey is going to steal your daughter and mess up your world. So that's the bigger kind of picture that we can take out of the myths and the folklore and a lot of the ones we're going to go over tonight. Like there's some really strong social commentaries in those and insights into the mindsets of the day and what was important to those people in their day. There's so much to be learned from it. But that is the story of the Lacey from Slavic mythology. Now we're going to come back across the ocean and we're going to talk about a spirit, a forest spirit that comes from the Cherokee people. Um, and we will do this one first and then we'll go take our commercial break after that. But let's get on to this one first. We'll squeeze it in. This comes from Myths of the Cherokee by James Mooney and it is extracted from the 19th Annual Report of the Bureau of American Ethnology. This is concerning the Nunehi and other spirit folk. 
The Nunehi are immortals, or the people who live anywhere. They're a race of spirits who lived in the highlands of the old Cherokee country and had a great many townhouses, especially in the Bald Mountains, the high peaks of which no timber ever grows. They had large townhouses in Pilot Knob and under the old Nequasi Mound in North Carolina, and another under Blood Mountain at the head of the Nautilus River in Georgia. They were invisible excepting when they wanted to be seen, and then they looked and spoke just like other Indians. They were very fond of music and dancing, and hunters in the mountains would often hear the dance and song and drums beating in some invisible townhouse, but when they went towards the sound, it would shift about, and they would hear it behind them or away in some other direction, so that they could never find the place where the dance was. They were a friendly people, too and they often brought lost wanderers to their townhouses under the mountains and cared for them there until they could be rested, and then they would guide them back to their homes. More than once, also, the Cherokee were hard-pressed by the enemy. The Nunehi warriors have come out, as they did at Old Nikwasi, and they have saved them from defeat. Some people have thought that they are the same as the Yunwe Sunzi, the little people, but these are fairies and no larger than the size of children. There was a man in Nautilus known to have been with the Nunehi, when he was a boy, and he told Wofford all about it. He was a truthful, hard-headed man, and Wofford had heard the story so often from other people that he asked him to tell it himself, and it was in this way. When he was about 10 or 12 years old, he was playing one day near the river, shooting at a mark with his bow and arrows, until he had become tired, and he started to build a fish trap in the water. Now while he was piling up the stones in two long walls, a man came and stood on the bank and asked him what he was doing. The boy told him and the man said, well, that's pretty hard work and you ought to rest a while. Can you come up and take a walk up the river with me? And the boy said no, that he was going home to dinner soon. And the man said, come right up to my house and I'll give you a good dinner there and bring you home again in the morning. So the boy went with him up the river until he came to a house. And when they went in, the man's wife and the other people there were very glad to see him and they gave him a fine dinner and they were very kind to him. And while they were eating, a man that the boy knew very well came in and spoke to him so that he felt quite at home. After dinner, he played with the other children and slept there that night. And in the morning, after breakfast, the man got ready to take him home. They went down a path that had a cornfield on one side and a peach orchard fenced in on the other, and they came to another trail. At that trail, the man said, Go along this trail, along the ridge, and you will come to the river road, and it will bring you straight to your home. And now I will go back to my own house. So the man went back to the house, and the boy went along the trail, but when he had gone a little way, he looked back, and there was no cornfield, nor an orchard, nor a fence or a house. There was nothing but trees in the side of the mountain. He thought that this was very strange, but somehow he was not frightened, and he went on until he came to the river trail inside of his home. There were a great many people standing about talking, and when they saw him, they ran towards him, shouting, Here he is, he is not drowned or killed in the mountains. A man took me over to his house just across the ridge, and I had a fine dinner and a good time with the children, said the boy. I thought Utsi here that was the name of the man he had seen at the dinner, would tell you where I was. But Utsi said, I haven't seen you. I was out all day in my canoe hunting you. It was one of the Nunehi that made himself look like me. And then his mother said, You say you had dinner there? And he said, Yes, I had plenty too. And his mother answered, There is no house there, only trees and rocks. But we do hear the drums sometimes in the big bald above. The people you saw were the Nunehi. This is a beautiful story. I love Cherokee stories. Cherokee stories, and Cherokee is a part of my heritage. I have a combined native heritage between Cherokee and Choctaw. Um, 
Cherokee stories, I find as I read through them all to be particularly well documented, the oral stories and particularly rich. Like I love these stories. The fascinating thing that really popped out to me about this story is what the little boy experienced. Well, let me just tell you this story and I'm not going to say names about this, even though this woman has come public with her own story. Um, there was a woman here in Arkansas that got lost last year. And while she was lost, she went into a very strange mental state and it was brought on by dehydration and, um, being hungry, lack of food, but mostly dehydration. And she was out there in the woods overnight by herself, completely lost. And while they were looking for her, she was having like hallucinations. She distinctly remembers a storm coming, which happened in reality. Bad storms rolled into the area the night that she was alone in the woods with no shelter. Um, and she remembers storms coming, but she very specifically remembers finding an old house that was abandoned and making her way into the house and laying down to sleep. When she woke up the next day and was eventually found by the search team, there was no house. That was all in her mind. Nor was it. That is the question that I believe we are entertaining here tonight. But it makes me think about this young Cherokee boy who went missing, essentially, and ended up in a house to be cared for until he could make his way back. You know, there's kind of a parallel there. There's a fascinating little parallel there. What if he had actually, what if he was lost? What if he was in danger? And what if on some weird plane of reality, he did find himself protected somewhere by something and that's how it appeared to him. I just saw a parallel between those two stories because this woman that went lost last year, y'all, she was in the broad wide open through some really, really terrible storms that night. They were tornado worn storms, heavy lightning, heavy thunder, high winds, very dangerous storms. And she like was essentially unaffected by those storms. Probably got soaking wet, but in her mind, she was inside of a shelter. She was inside of a house, inside of a valley that didn't exist in the reality she was actually in. It's just a fascinating idea to entertain. That is getting very long. We've definitely run on to our commercial break for the night. So let's take a sponsor break and we will get back to the rest of our stories. Tonight's episode about the spirits of the forest. We will be right back. I want to take a second to tell you guys about tonight's sponsor, Survival Feeling. Survival Feeling is a hiking brand based in Greece, and they offer an assortment of gear that's aimed towards the goal of helping you better enjoy your time outside. And that is, of course, what we are all about here at Wayward Stories. I really like this company for a lot of reasons, but chief amongst them is that they were founded with giving back to the community in mind. They donate a portion of all proceeds to organizations like the Wildland Firefighters Foundation to help support those who work to keep us all safe while we're out there trying to find ourselves. We've partnered with them to bring you guys a unique coupon code that will save you wayward souls 15% off of your order. Go to survivalfeeling.com and use offer code waywardstories at checkout. Once again, that's survivalfeeling.com and use the offer code waywardstories. And welcome back. Thank you guys for sitting through that sponsor break. Let's just get right back into it and get moving. At this point, we are going to be getting into a very specific version of spirit, um, spirit folk, forest spirits. And these are the little people of spiritual um, folklore. 
this is fascinating stuff to me. Like I learned of these stories and I'm going to go more detailed about my personal experience with this on the very last story of the night. We're like building to a place, but I have a something of a background to this. And I first learned of these when I was probably nigh on 18 years old, around about 18 or 19. I grew up in the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, Southeast Oklahoma. Like I said, I have a little bit of Choctaw heritage and a little bit of Cherokee. But these stories have always fascinated me. One, because it is. It's just that the possibility of the unknown. But in the broader cultural context of the whole situation, these little spirit folks are just like the spirit folks of European mythology and folklore. This shouldn't be possible. Like I said just a little while ago, this shouldn't be possible because these legends and folklore and mythology and stories, I prefer to call them stories because I'm not telling anyone what they believe is a myth. Okay, like I just, I'm not going to do that. I prefer to call them stories. These stories predate Colombian contact. This should not, by all rights, be possible for there to have been a influence of one to the other. So how do you end up with two almost identical acting in nature and in many, many cases physically described nearly identical mythical beings that don't exist in multiple cultures that are divided by enormous oceans? Like that is the most fascinating part of this to me. Um... And in amongst the Native American traditions, like we're talking all over the United States, from the Northwest to the Northeast, to the South, to the Southwest, to the Southeast, all these disparate Native tribes and Native nations have some version of this little guy. And they're like nearly identical. You know, that's easier to explain. There was contact there on the same continent. Like you can just the hypothesis is not hard to put together for that, but it's that crossing of the Atlantic that makes it harder to stomach the idea that this idea came originally once from somewhere. And these are all extrapolations of that story in the historical game of telephone. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say, God, it doesn't even make sense to me, but if you're following me, Kudos to you, but let's get into the stories. We're going to start out with some myths and legends of Wisconsin's Waterfalls by D Dorothy Molding Brown. We actually quoted this a couple of episodes ago, but we're going to do it again because this part of it touches on the spirit folk. You remember when we foreshadowed last time? Well, the shadow has come to fruition. We are here. Um, Myths and Legends of Wisconsin's Waterfalls, published in the Wisconsin Archaeologist, Volume 18, Number 4, 1938. Indian fairy folk, commonly spoken of as little Indians, frequent the vicinity of waterfalls. The Chippewa's name for them is the Little Manitou, or the Spirit Men. Sister M. Macaria, St. Mary's School, Odonna, in a recent letter to Charles E. Brown on May 24, 1938, super recent now, right, mentions these fairy folk. These little men roam about near the bodies of water. Bad River Falls and the Bad River is one of their favorite haunts. Marble Point is another and the Apostle Islands are one of their main stomping grounds. They may be seen from a distance, but to approach them is an impossibility. These little men give great power if dreamed about. An old Chippewa traveling years ago across the trail to Lake Superior saw a gathering of these Puckwajinis near the base of a waterfall. They were dressed like Indians, apparently holding counsel, and he very wisely did not attempt to approach them. All right, so there is some historical documentation of the stories of the Chippewa and the Little Manitou Men. 
the little spirit men, tiny men dressed like Indians, just like the rest of the natives and of spiritual origin within their cultural story. The next one is the Makiwasug or the little people of the Mohegans. The rocks of Mohegan Hill are the home of the Makiwasug or little people. After nightfall, the call of the whippoorwill signals their arrival. They are good spirits, but the Mohegan know that they must be treated with respect, according to tradition. It is important to leave baskets of food, such as corn, corn cakes, berries, or even meat in the woods for them. Wearing moccasin flowers for shoes, they gather the gifts at night. In fact, Mekiwasug means the whippoorwill moccasins. They have their own rules of etiquette, and those who see the little people should know not to look directly at them, because they think it is rude. If they catch you staring, they might point a finger at you, rooting you to the ground while they take your belongings. Another rule is to not speak of them in the summer when they are most active. But in return for kindness... They taught the Mohegan people how to grow corn and use healing plants. They keep the earth well and grant favors for those that honor their ways. When the English settlers came and disrupted the traditional way of the Mohegan life, many forgot to help the Mekiwasug. And as a result, many Mohegans and Mekiwasug fell ill. At this time of bad spirits, there lived a medicine woman. And one night, during a terrible storm, she heard the whippoorwill. It turned out to be a grown Mekiwasug named Wegan who told her to come help someone who was sick. Though the storm was fierce, he led her through the woods a long way. Suddenly the storm seemed to stop as they began to descend into the ground. They were in the realm of the little people. Wegan led her to a beehive-shaped chamber of rocks. Inside, a very old woman lay ill in bed. The Mekiwasug told the medicine woman that this was Granny Squanet, who must be made well. Granny Squanet is very powerful, and she is known to cause storms when she argues with her husband. Her illness was the reason for this storm. Worse, healers often look to Granny Squanet when the need is dire for help and healing, and here she was, the one who was sick. The medicine woman treated Granny Squanet for nearly a moon before she got better, and in return for restoring Granny Squanet's health, the Mekiwasug gave the medicine woman a basket of gifts and told her to remember them. She was blindfolded and taken back home. Only when she returned did she open the basket. Inside were quartz crystals, painted skins, and bunches of herbs. And so that was the Mekiwasug of the Mohegan tribal peoples. Um, and it mentioned in the very first passage we read about puck wedgies. So let's talk about the puck wedgies real quick. Puck wedgies are magical humanoid race of people that feature prominently in Algonquin lore. To different tribes, the puck wedgie acts and looks differently. For example, in the Ojibwe tribes, they are described as a mischievous but mostly good-natured being that may trick people but rarely has malicious intent. The Wampanoag and many other tribes of the New England area know the Pukwudgie to be both a trickster but also dangerous. They are known to play tricks but in some cases help out a human who has encountered them. If you wrong them or somehow offend them, they are known to steal children, commit acts of terror, and they can even be deadly. There's a link to the Leishi from the Slavic origins known to steal children, and that is a recurrent theme in a lot of these stories. And it may have been ancient cultural ways of explaining the tragedy of losing children. When you lived in a tribal type of situation, when you lived at the edge of all that is known, it was probably inevitable that a child was going to wander off and be lost and never found. And perhaps some of these stories are the ways of coping with that. That's a very real possibility. Back into the narrative, puck wedgies are 
often likened to the Western European fairy or gnome. While almost all accounts note that they are tricksters, accounts vary on whether or not they have malicious intent. They are typically described as being about knee-high to an average height human. They have large heads, sagging shoulders, a stooped appearance, and a tendency to hunch forward when they walk. Despite this, they still appear to be agile and quick. Although they are small, they are typically carrying arrows, some of which can be poisoned, knives or spears. They can also attack in unison to kidnap people, push them off of cliffs, or otherwise intimidate. Their name denotes their habitat. Pukwedgie translates directly to person of the wilderness, and they are often revered and respected as protectors or spirits of the forest. They are also known to have special powers, and these powers vary depending on the tribe speaking about Pukwedgie lore, but they usually include the ability to become invisible, confound people, shapeshift, and bring harm to people simply through their gaze. Native Americans believe that if you were to cross the path of a Pukwedgie, you should avoid it as much as possible and not interact at all with the being. So that is a smattering of tales from the more northern tribes of the North American continent. Um, we're going to move a little further south now, directly south, into essentially um, the Carolinas, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia. Like We're going into the southeast United States, the east and southeast, for our last two stories of the night where we're going to talk about first the little people of the Cherokee, and then we're going to finish with the little people of Choctaw legend. So... Let's get on to the Cherokee first. The Little People of the Cherokee The Little People of the Cherokee are a race of spirits who live in rocks and caves and on the mountainside. They are very little fellows and ladies reaching almost to your knees. They are very well shaped and handsome, and their hair so long it almost touches the ground. They are very helpful, kind-hearted, and they work great wonders. They love music and they spend most of their time drumming, singing, and dancing. They have a very gentle nature, but they do not like to be disturbed. Sometimes their drums are heard in lonely places in the mountains, but it is not safe to follow it, for they do not like to be disturbed at home, and they will throw a spell over the stranger so that he is bewildered and loses his way, and even if he does at last get back to the settlement, he is like one dazed ever after. Sometimes also they come near a house at night, and the people inside hear them talking, but they must not go out, and in the morning... They find the corn gathered in the fields and cleared as if a whole force of men had been at work. If anyone should go out to watch, he would die. When a hunter finds anything in the woods, such as a knife or a trinket, he must say, Little people, I would like to take this, because it may belong to them, and if he does not ask their permission, they will throw stones at him as he goes home. Make a note of that stone-throwing thing. Some little people are black, some are white, some are golden like the Cherokee. Sometimes they speak in Cherokee, but other times they speak in their own native language. Some call them brownies. Little people are here to teach lessons about living in harmony with nature and with others. There are three kinds of little people. The laurel people, the rock people, and the dogwood people. The rock people are the mean ones who practice getting even, who steal children and the like. But they are like this because their space has been invaded. The laurel people play tricks and are generally mischievous. When you find children laughing in their sleep, well, that is the laurel people. They are humorous and they enjoy sharing joy with others. Then there are the dogwood people who are good and take care of people. The lessons taught by the little people are clear. The rock people teach us that if you do things to other people out of meanness or intentionally, it will come back to you. We must always respect other people's limits and their boundaries. Boy, that is ancient wisdom right there that is 
kind of coming full circle in the modern day and everyone is starting to learn about their personal boundaries and respecting people's boundaries and how to state their boundaries, etc., etc., at all. Like, it's kind of fascinating. The ancient wisdoms still pervade and are true and remain true to this day. The Laurel people teach us that we shouldn't take the world too seriously, and we must always have joy and share that joy with others. The lessons of the Dogwood people are simple. If you do something for someone, do it out of the goodness of your heart. Don't do it to have people obligated to you or for your own personal gain. In Cherokee beliefs, many stories contain references to these beings called the little people. These people are supposed to be small, mythical characters, and in different beliefs, they serve different purposes. There are a lot of stories and legends about the little people, and you can see the people out in the forest. They can talk, and they look a lot like natives, except that they're only about two feet high, though sometimes they're smaller. Now, the little people can be very helpful, but they can also play tricks on us as well. So you can see there... A lot of things that line up and match up with some of the stories we've already talked about. Not just the other Native American tribes, but the ones on the European continent as well. Again, with stories that predate Colombian contact. That's the theme for tonight. Just keep that in mind. There must be some way to explain the same exact physically described group of spiritual beings, for lack of a better way of putting it, who look the same who do the same kinds of things, there's got to be an explanation. And it's October. So we're going to go with the fun one. But let's get on to our last story of the night. This one, like, if I have, as I said earlier, if I have accrued any credibility with you whatsoever, and you are not of the believing kind or even open to the possibility of anything outside of the reality we see, I might lose you for good. After we tell this story, because I'm going to tell you a personal story about something that happened to me concerning this very legend that I am about to recite to you. And I'm just going to warn you right now. And I, you know, I actually thought real hard about this. Like, I'm a little bit uncomfortable about it right now. I just saw myself in the camera here. I'm fidgeting with my watch and everything else. I'm a little bit uncomfortable about it right now. When you tell things like this, like you really are, you're going to have people who are like, oh, he's crazy. Oh, he's nuts. He's one of those people. But you know what? My reality is my reality and I'm living it to the best of my ability. And you know what? I just, I'm going to share this story. I'm just going to put it out there. You know what? Whether you like it or not, it's coming. And if I lose you, I hate to see that happen, but you know, it is what it is. So we're now going to tell the story of the little people of Choctaw mythology and legend and lore. Um, my story actually starts with this when I was in my teens in high school and these stories about what they called the way it was pronounced there was the Kunikusha. Um, that's how everyone pronounced it. And it is a fascinating story and it essentially was unchanged. What I heard from friends and people like in our little circles was really about the whole story. It was pretty accurate to the way it was originally told. And a friend of mine and I, his father knew I mean, to us, it was the old Choctaw woman out on 128 and he knew her. And when he sent us out there and said, Hey, you guys, if you're interested in that, she is the person that can tell you this story. And she told us the story. And I'll be honest with you. It's, it's exactly chronologically speaking, point for point. It's the same story that I can now find online. And I adjure you to remember that in 1997, 1998, 
the internet was only budding. We were only starting to get access to it. And like, as it was at that time, teenage boys only used the internet to look up one thing, like guitar music. But we didn't have the access to these things. We, it wasn't there. The internet wasn't even really populated with a lot of information yet. You know, the internet's all of us putting stuff out there. It's individual humans and universities and everything else. That's how it's kind of grown up. That's what the internet has grown into. But back in its budding days of being released into the public, into the wild for the public to use and consume, y'all remember Netscape Navigator and all that kind of stuff? That was the internet back then. That was the internet. And there wasn't much there. And it took all damn day to load a single guitar tab. The reason I never learned how to play Eruption is because it wouldn't download. Like I could not get the tab to download. That's how slow the internet was back then. Dial-up modems, all that. But that's not really important to the story tonight. What's important tonight is this kind of information wasn't readily available. We were still in a way into like oral tradition territory back there orally passed down, you know, and written in books, but it wasn't like I could just Google this, but we show up to talk to this woman and she tells us this story. And again, essentially exactly as this one is written before me, perhaps she wrote this story and put it on the internet. Maybe she became tech savvy after the fact. I don't know, but this is the story as it was relayed to me. And as it is recorded on the internet, a Choctaw legend of the little people, A long time ago in ancient time, while the Choctaw Indians were living in Mississippi, the Choctaw legends say that a certain supernatural being or spirit lived near them. These spirits, or little people, were known as the Cowie and Akasha, or the forest dwellers. They were about two or three feet tall. These pygmy beings lived deep in the thick forest, and their homes were in the caves hidden under large rocks. When a boy child is two, three, or even four years old, he will often wander off into the woods, playing or chasing a small animal. When the little one is well out of sight from his home, Kwanokasha, who is also always on watch, seizes the boy and takes him away to his cave, his dwelling place. Many times his cave is far away, and Kwanokasha and the little boy must travel a very long way. Climbing many hills, they cross many streams, and when they finally reach the cave, Kwanokasha takes him inside where he is met by three other spirits, all very old, with long white hair. The first one offers the boy a knife. The second one offers him a bunch of poisonous herbs. The third offers a bunch of herbs yielding good medicine. If the child accepts the knife, he is certain to become a bad man, and he may even kill of his friends. If he accepts the poisonous herbs... He will never be able to cure or to help his people. But if he accepts the good herbs, he is destined to become a great doctor and an important and influential man of his tribe and win the confidence of his people. When he accepts the good herbs, the three old spirits will tell him the secrets of making medicines from herbs, roots and barks of certain trees and of the treating and curing of various fevers, pains and other sicknesses. That is the reason the little people take the boy child to their home in the wilderness in order to train Choctaw doctors, transmitting to them their special curative powers and to train them in the manufacture of their medicines. The child will remain with the spirits for three days, after which he is returned. He does not tell where he has been or what he has seen or heard, and not until he becomes a man will he make use of the knowledge gained from the spirits, and never will he reveal to others how it was acquired. It is said amongst the Choctaw that few children wait to accept the offering of the good herbs from the third spirit, and that is why there are so few great doctors and other men of influence among the Choctaw.
It is also said that the little people are never seen by the common Choctaw. The Choctaw prophets and herb doctors, however, claim the power of seeing them and holding communications with them. During the darkest nights in all kinds of weather, you can see a strange light wandering around in the woods. This light is the Indian doctor and his little helper looking for that special herb to treat and cure a very sick tribesman. I love that story. Part of it's because I have a personal connection to it. It is a fascinating story to me, but I want you to take particular note of seeing a light wandering in the woods. That's going to come into play in just a few minutes. Now I'm going to tell you about another Choctaw little person, another variation of him. They could be one and the same, but it appears to me through my research as best that I can ferret it out that they are two different um, spiritual beings that have been kind of amalgamated into one through copy and paste and all of those kinds of things in the modern digital age. They are the Bopoli, another little spirit person of Choctaw lore. The Bopoli are little people of Choctaw folklore, known for causing mischief and particularly for throwing rocks at people. Make a note of that. The name Bopoli literally means thrower. Some people believe that the Bopoli are the same as the Kawianakasha, another race of Choctaw little people who are typically described as powerful and dangerous rather than mischievous. They may have had two different aspects, or they may be two of the same creatures. This diminutive, two-foot-tall creature was sort of a Choctaw equivalent of Pan from Greek myths or Bess from Egyptian myths. He lived in the forest, and he would often toy impishly with visitors to his arboreal domain by throwing sticks or stones at them before ducking out of sight. Any unusual sounds or movements in the forest were attributed to the Bopoli who forever dwelt on the outskirts and the peripheral vision of the human victims that he played his pranks on. Another of the figure's favorite activities was to loudly bang on a pine tree, yes, specifically pine trees, and to wake up travelers who were camped for the night in his territory. Bopoli, in some sources an entire race and not just an individual, lived in the deepest reaches of the forest in caves concealed by large rocks. So that is the story of... The Kwanokasha, the Kawianakasha, the Kunukusha, all three being the same thing, pronounced differently and spelled differently, and the Bopoli. The two may be one and the same, or they may be two different entities, but here's where it gets crazy. Here's where we're going to get, where here's where I'm going to lose you guys tonight. You're either going to be with me, or it's ride or die right now. Um, I've mentioned before my background in film and video production. That came 10 years after my introduction to the idea of the Kwanakasha or the Kony Anakasha. But when we started making it, I mentioned it last week that we got pressured because of the trends of the time to sell episodes and sell advertising for episodes rather like, you know, to get popular to go more paranormal. As we went through and did episodes and our episodes got less and less legend trippy and more and more paranormal in origin. One thing that came to the forefront as a writer of the show, conceptual person, you know, behind the show, what do we talk about? I said, well, we live here in the Choctaw Nation. Um, after the removal, of course, there is a ancestral homeland in the southeast of the Choctaw people. Um, I actually went to the Nanawaya Mound, which is considered to be the origin point, the origin place of the Choctaw people when I was in Mississippi. Um, 
But in the modern day, since the early 1800s, like early 1800s, 18 teens after the Trail of Tears, the Choctaw Nation as a whole has been based in southeastern Oklahoma. And it's the whole southeastern portion of the state. It's where I grew up. It's where my ancestors are from and where my Choctaw lineage comes from, what little I have of it. I was like, well, we're from here. We're in the right place. Why don't we go out and see if we can research and catch evidence of the Kunikusha? That's how we pronounced it then. You know, research, even then in 2008, internet research was still lacking a lot. It's not nearly as robust as it is now. Um, But essentially, here's what happened that night. We went deep into the Washita Mountains in far southeast Oklahoma, nearly two hours from where I reside now in Fort Smith and resided at that time, as a matter of fact. Um, and we decided to camp for the night deep in the mountains, deep in the forest, and try to record any evidence we could. This is what happened. And I'd say to you, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Like, I'm not going to sit here and put my hand on a Bible or nothing like that, but I'm just going to say that what I speak to you here is, is a true testament, a true testimony of what happened to me and my production crew that night. There was a grand total of one, two, three, four, five. There was maybe six of us maximum. I'm not going to sit here and count it out. I could tell you exactly who, but there was either five or there were six of us that night. And camera operator, um, myself, my brother, um, audio operator, another investigator, I think. I think we said it five. And we went down before dark. We set up camp, got our camp set up, and we essentially started kind of just traversing some of the old logging roads deep in the mountains there, in the pine forest, the loblolly pines of southeast Oklahoma. And stuff started happening, like almost right out of the gate. And the most notable things that happened were that of sticks and rocks seem to be being thrown at us. I need to tell you this. This is important. When we were making that show, we were actually trying to use good investigative techniques. We did not announce on like social media, which at the time was MySpace. God, do you remember that? We didn't announce when we were going to do things to keep from contamination of our investigation. So like if we went out, we didn't want to tell everyone in this town we were going to, hey, we're going to come investigate your cool urban legend so that someone could go out there and be ready for us, know when we were going to be there and then jack with us to give us the evidence we wanted. You know, we didn't announce those things. We went in quiet. It was covert operation. Um, And who the heck would have gone out there and set up that deep in the mountains? It's just a whole different, it makes no sense. But we're out there and... The two most notable things that happened, physically happened, are that as we investigated, our camera operator was using one of the old Handycam video cassette recorders, which at that time had night vision. There was one of the old models. You can't get those anymore because people figured out they could see through like clothes. So obviously teenage boys did what teenage boys do and they had to take that off the market. They had to change it completely, but it actually had night vision. You could use it and use infrared and you could see out into the night. And this is in 2008, mind you. So we're in the middle of the forest, over 20 miles from the closest actual town. We were at least 10 miles from the closest house to 15 because we were in national forest land, deep in it. And our camera operator, Keith, he's looking through in the night vision into the darkness of the woods. We were in a valley, so there is no chance he was picking up street lights from the town 20 miles to our north. That could be possible on top of a ridge. 
could be. But we were in a valley. We were surrounded by mountains all around us. We were in the depth of nowhere. And on his camcorder, across the valley that fell further below us and up the other side of the ridge, he, no joke, got little lights in the recording. He absolutely did. Like, it could possibly be explained that there may have been gnats or some kind of other bug flying about in front of us, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 feet out, who knows, and the infrared that you cannot see with your naked eye, of course, was reflecting off of them and creating like a orb-like light, I guess you would call it, off of bugs or something like that. That is possible. Not going to rule that out. But that was just one part of the bigger picture here. He got that. We were all fascinated by it. We followed it further down the ridge until we could go no further because of a ledge and a drop-off. And so we're reviewing this. We're all looking at it going, wow, look at that. There's really something in there. I wonder what that is. And we were talking about what, what could it be? What are the possibilities of what this could be? Could it be bugs? Is this reflection in IR? Does it work that way? Like this was all new stuff back then. And as we did that, we literally kind of started to at first slowly notice, but I think everyone was starting to become cognizant around the same time, conscious of the fact that things were falling in the forest around us. I need to go back and point out, I grew up hunting and fishing and camping in the woods and my entire upbringing, I lived in the woods on weekends throughout my high school years from like 12 years old on. Like I grew up outside. Yeah, stuff falls in the woods. Pine cones fall out of pine, pine trees. Absolutely they do. Sticks fall out of pine trees. If there's a strong breeze come up, you could hear a lot of stuff drop in a short amount of time. And if there is no breeze, occasionally you get a plump here, a plump there. That happens. Do not deny that. But there was something with regularity and consistency starting to happen. And in the woods around us, it literally sounded like almost like huge drops of rain right at that moment. After the first drop hits the ground and then they start to come more intermittently and they pick up in speed, that's kind of what it felt like was happening, but there was not a cloud in the sky and it wasn't forecast to rain, none of that, okay? So we start hearing this and everyone stops and finally someone says, do you guys hear this? And we all do. And we talk about it and we listen and we listen. And sure enough, this pretty stuff with some mass. It's not like a pine cone. When a pine cone hits... It's kind of a light thud because pine cones don't have much mass and they're kind of like almost like natural umbrellas in a way with all the, the cones spread out, like they fall soft and they land soft. This sounded like a rock hitting the ground, a thud, you know, a real thud. So what we ended up doing to make a long story short is we ended up setting the camera aside on a static tripod facing us and we all formed a circle together, not to do any kind of weird stuff like a seance, but for a actual functional purpose. We all could look each other in the eyes. All of our hands were pointed, were out in front of us so we could all see each other's hands. And every single person in our crew was accounted for and their hands were visible and the stuff in the woods kept falling. And then an actual small rock, about a chunk the size of maybe an ice cube, actually bounced outside of the circle behind us and rolled up between, I don't remember whose feet it was, but it rolled into the circle. It bounced and, you know, kind of skittered in. And there was a rock and we were like, okay, cool. Let's get out of here. So that legitimately physically happened to me while I was looking for a mythological spirit entity that supposedly likes to throw rocks and things 
we legitimately, to me, I mean, I know it till the day I die. I know rocks were thrown at us by something out there in the woods. You will probably never believe that I may have lost you, but it is a true testimony of what happened to me. And the, the, the culmination, I was about to say the summation, I don't summarize anything. Um, the culmination of that story is, is we went back to camp and tried to wrap up the episode. We've still planned to camp. Like we're, we're only like half a mile from camp, but still deep in the woods. And we had to hike back up to camp and we sat down and we recorded an outro. We recorded a little bit of a monologue. We talked about what had happened and we kind of recorded everything we needed to record and get on video. And then we were sitting around the fire and it was kind of funny because there became a real awkwardness in the air for all of us. There became a real awkward silence as everyone was just staring at the fire and nobody was going to bed and it was getting later and later. It was like 1245, then it was one, then it was 1.30. And finally, I remember I'm the one that spoke up and I said, guys, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I have an absolute feeling of dread in my gut. I do not want to be here. I feel absolute dread. That is the only way to describe it. It has never happened to me in the woods before. And it's never happened to me since to this day. And I'm 41 now or about to be 41. Um, that legit happened. I felt a sense of dread and there is no other word to put. There was no logic. There was no reason behind it. It was just absolute dread. It wasn't terror. I wasn't terrified. I wasn't scared in the way that you think of scared per se. It more felt like I'm going to die. Something dreadful is going to happen. Something greater than just I'm going to get scared because I'm going to see something I don't want to see. It was another level from that. Dread is the right word. And as soon as I said it, everyone, everyone chimed in. Yeah, me too. And I forget, I think it was the, the, our audio operator, the mic man. He was like, oh my God, I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to be the first to say it. Like everyone was like, yeah, let's get out of here. And we packed up and drove two hours back to town and barely got back before dawn. Like it's not an easy decision to make. You don't want to have to pack up a camp, which is going to take you a half an hour and then drive two hours to come home when it's already two o'clock in the morning. And y'all, I remember it was a quick pack of camp, but it was also a really weird one. I remember I was starting to get scared, even though we were like basically aborting the mission and we were getting the heck out of there. I can still, I still see it in my mind. I remember us packing up and working in twos and flashlights everywhere, truck headlights. We drove it down the logging road to where we had camped to get the, the headlights on us where we could see the forest and what was around us. It was just that creepy. It was just that creepy. Um, and that really happened to me that legitimately, like I said, if I'm lying, I'm dying. You can take it or leave it, believe it or not. But that happened to me. And that's one of the reasons it's little things like that. That's one of the reasons. I mean, a, I guess it's weird, but that I do love the possibility of the unknown and what could be out there. But I think it's the reason I think that there's a possibility of the unknown and what could be out there. Sometimes it takes an actual personal experience to send you over the edge. You know what I mean? Um, but that's a true story. That's a true story. And every once in a while to this day, I still think about that night when I'm camping. I mean, I do a lot of solo camping in the last few years. Sometimes I'm hiked pretty far out there all alone, hanging in a hammock with no egress, <laughs> no contingency plan, no exit strategy. 
and you'll think of something like that night. And I'll be like, God, what would I do tonight if something like that happened? I'm here alone. This would be way worse than it was then. But it's never happened again. It's never happened again since that night. Couple of quick notes I want to make because this is way long. This episode, holy crap. If I don't chop the crap out of it, this is going to be an hour and a half long episode. Um, But a couple of quick notes I want to make. We talked about Bigfoot last week. I've never heard anyone make this link. And, you know, Bigfoot's like a crypto thing. And, of course, paranormal is it's sort of its own thing. But they do have like a bit of a Venn diagram going on. You know, like there is a, nobody knows, whatever. But they, they exist in the same universe in a sense. Bigfoot is known to throw rocks at people and make knocking noises by hitting trees with sticks. Right? What did you guys just hear in all those stories of the little people, North American, specifically native tribes, spirit, little people, all of them throw rocks and a couple of them like to make knocking noises on trees. I don't think that's a coincidence. There could be something out there throwing rocks and making noises. And maybe it's neither spirit, little person nor Bigfoot, but it's something And those are just ways that the peoples and cultures of a certain area, maybe that's just the way their version of it came out. One of them turned into a big hairy butted ape man that smells like garbage. And the other one, um, you know, was really, really fascinating little spirit people. So for any of you, my brothers and sisters out there that love to go hiking and camping in the woods that were unaware of the possibility and how ubiquitous to Native American culture. It is North America wide. It is continent wide and it's worldwide. These little spirit folk that are akin to fairies and sprites of their European counterparts. These things exist in all cultures, pre-Columbian contact from the dawn of oral traditions being handed down. And there might just be, there might just be some sand to it. Perhaps there is a grain of truth to the legend and the lore occasionally. Thank you guys for joining me once again. If you have stories of your own you would like to share with your fellow listeners, mywaywardstory at gmail.com. If you want to help the show grow so that we can keep making this, if you're enjoying it and you want me to keep making it, I got to have listeners because I got to get some sponsorship at some point. The best way to do that is to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and word of mouth. Tell your friends Um, for everything and anything else. Any of my socials, my pictures, my photography I do, website, www.waywardstories.com. Other than that, you guys, I hope you're enjoying your spooky season. I hope you're enjoying the fall. I hope you're enjoying all the pumpkin spice garbage out there in the world and until i talk to you guys again next week and we wrap up our spooky season series please 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 be good to each other